Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. Today I'm chatting with Peter Bell and Justin Turner from Traction Capital Partners in Tacoma, Washington, just south of Seattle. Peter and Justin both reached out over Twitter, and the more I learned about their firm, the more interesting it became to me. Traction is a small private equity firm that blurs the lines between a private equity fund and a permanent capital vehicle, which is what made them so interesting to me. They have a handful of long-term investors and seek to buy and hold great companies indefinitely, which gives them the unique ability to make long-term oriented decisions and wait for great opportunities. We begin with Peter telling me about a content idea he has for Traction and move through the topics of starting a private equity fund, lessons learned, what they look for in both businesses and owners, and a few stories. Peter and Justin are both deep thinkers and have been fun to get to know, and I hope that shows in the episode. Please enjoy our conversation. Do you want to chat at all about your comedians in cars equivalent idea? with the video series you've thought about? Sure. Obviously there's a lot of content production going on right now, some in the form of podcasts, medium articles, you name it. And an idea I had that actually was spurred from my girlfriend was to do a more focused kind of vlog series. She had passed along these videos from this website called Houdinki and they do interviews with celebrities, people in the business world, and they go through their watch collections. So it's a really cool, like, I like how it's all shot with, they can talk about, like Patrick Ewing was on it. So they can talk about his experience in the NBA and then they launch into chatting about his like amazing watch collection. And so an idea I had for what we might do, you know, we're, we've thought about a podcast and are working on content, but doing something similar to that with business owners, um, where it's maybe a less formalized podcast, but more... I, we had the idea of doing it like trying out new IPAs or different kind of whiskeys or food. Who knows? We don't. We haven't formalized it yet. But having something to base the conversation around, where it's kind of that introduction, talking about a new drink or something, and then launching into kind of like a conversation you'd have at dinner or a happy hour. Maybe do a vlog with it, or it could end up being a podcast too. So, just in the early stages of the idea. There's a lot of other PE firms or permanent capital funds that are trying to figure out ways to deliver content or produce it in a way that attracts other business owners or people who might sell them or know someone who could sell their company to them. And I, I think Brent Bishore does that really well. And I think other people are trying to emulate that in certain ways. Um, is that part of your thought process behind the vlog podcast idea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's getting in front of business owners in the lower middle market space is really challenging. And so I, I grew up in a third generation family business and my dad currently runs a business in the Northwest, a commercial doors and frames distributor. And I remember asking him, you know, how, how would you like to get approached in these situations? He happens to be on Twitter and follows this stuff. So he's probably an outlier, but a lot of the owners in his industry, um, talk about how they would love a better way to get this content. And I think it was Trent Griffin who had the quote, he's like, he'd rather get his message through to a plumber in Akron than a hedge fund manager looking to make a couple more basis points. And so I thought that message really stuck with me. 
And that's kind of where the thought process came for, hey, what kind of content could we produce that some of these business owners might find a little bit more appealing or, I don't know, ask them, hey, you want to go to this new whiskey bar and try out these certain, then maybe we talk about your business. Might be a better way to get in front of them. Yeah, it could be more of a smooth opening. Yeah, maybe. Sense. We'll see. I, it's it's still early stages. I don't know if we'll end up rolling it out or not, but just kind of an idea. That's me. I would definitely listen. Speaking of interviews, whenever I listen to a podcast or read an interview of an entrepreneur, the most interesting part of that interview to me is the early days and how they started their business or organization and you know, sort of the you know, trials they went through to get it going. And what I've been looking forward to with conversation with you both today is that you're currently in those early days. And so the memories and the emotions are very vivid and you live them every day. So would you both be able to chat a little bit about your backgrounds, how you got here, and then the early days so far with traction? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up here in the Northwest. We're sitting in Tacoma, Washington right now. I grew up about 45 minutes or so from here. Did my undergrad uh, at a small Christian school called Northwest University. Studied finance and accounting up there. And was fortunate, I got an internship with an M&A firm my end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year. And so got a lot of exposure to mergers and acquisitions, to investment banking, to private equity, which all of that was a world that, while I had been studying finance, didn't know really even that it existed. You would like read the Wall Street Journal and see somebody got bought, but you didn't understand what all went into something like that happening. So did my internship and then worked for that firm for about six years out of undergrad, primarily doing M&A advisory work for businesses that had less than $100 million in revenue that were kind of based here in the Western U.S. After doing that for a while, realized I wanted to jump over to the private equity side of things. Largely, I felt like the investment banking work, you're almost a mercenary, essentially. You come in, you work on a project for six to 24 months, and then you're on to the next thing. And what happens with that business you just sold doesn't have any effect on you. You got paid for doing the deal, but not for actually, in my mind, helping the business. So started working in private equity. I took a job down in Austin, Texas, working for a firm down there. Was down there for a handful of years, learned a lot, but wanted to get back up here to the Northwest. Most of my family's up here. I love the Northwest lifestyle. And so started traction kind of end of 2017, beginning of 2018 with a couple of other guys, really focused around finding great companies that are based here in the Northwest that are probably smaller than what a typical private equity group would be looking for. Um, so for us, you know, we say one to 10 in EBITDA, I would say the majority of the deals we look at are probably in that one to five range. And yeah, really, when coming back from Texas, really just wanted to have my own firm work with people I really liked and and be able to do fun deals. Yeah, so I grew up in Southern Oregon, uh, came up to Tacoma to go to University of Puget Sound, where little brother is currently playing football at. Yep. I uh, got to play football and golf there and then ended up getting an internship at a local boutique investment bank here in Tacoma. Worked as an analyst there for a year and then had an opportunity to join BlackRock in the Seattle office uh, where I did uh, worked on their valuation team. Really enjoyed the big company experience, but I was always pretty drawn to coming back to the this space. My dad, as I said, runs a third generation business. 
my mom has been a business owner and an entrepreneur. My grandma has been a business owner. And so I, I kind of always knew I was going to come back to this space. I just didn't really know what it was going to look like. I had worked with, with Jake and Justin and Dale and Brian previously and kind of through my time at BlackRock, this opportunity presented itself and then it kind of just made more and more sense. And I think the big thing is, yeah, we're looking for great companies. We have a lot of fun as a group and we get along really well and each brings something a little bit different to the table. And so we're really excited about this first deal that we got done and are looking forward to the next ones. Kind of piggybacking off what Peter said, there's there's four of us that started it. Myself, a gentleman named Jake Matei, a gentleman named Brian Haynes, uh, and then a guy named Dale Payne. And with the five of us that are here now, kind of Dale and Peter kind of head the operations side of things for us. So once we make an investment, Peter and Dale are really the ones that are in there day to day figuring out where do we need to improve processes, where do we need to add staff, uh, and then what are the things that we can do to start growing the business. And for us, biggest thing, the business would have been successful whether or not we made the investment, so we're trying not to screw it up, <laughs> is, is basically the goal from day one. And then once we start to get our arms around it a little more, try and figure out where we can help and actually start driving some of the growth side of things. With your small investment group, the goal was primarily to find these small companies. Do you also view Traction as a way to offer a, a service to owners who are looking to retire? Do you feel like you're offering both services and that's a big part of Traction? I think depending on the entrepreneur. So in with the business we acquired in October, we bought about 75% of the company. So the, the two prior shareholders, which was a brother and sister, they still own a chunk of the business alongside of us. The sister, kind of her goal with the transaction was to fairly quickly transition out, focus on being a mom. She's got a couple of younger kids, which we totally were in support of that. The brother, Steve, he's continuing on to kind of drive the sales side of the business for us going forwards. And he's aligned with us to, to help grow it over the next couple of years. And for us, you know, I think a lot of times you hear private equity and you think, okay, someone's gonna acquire my company, they're going to cut as many costs as they can. They're going to try and grow it a little bit and then hopefully sell it at a higher multiple with a bigger EBITDA number. And they're trying to do that in a compressed time frame. So they're trying to do that in three to five years, ideally. For us, our goal is to hold these businesses indefinitely. We want them to slowly grow over time, but we don't have a mandate where we have to sell them at some point to return capital to LPs. And is that a factor of your investors having an equally long time horizon? I would say, yeah. So for us, when we're, we would be what's called a fundless sponsor or an independent sponsor where we don't have a fund that we've raised that we can call on to go do a deal. For us, we're going out on every deal that we look at and, and raising equity both from ourselves here internally and then also from typically high net worth individuals and family offices. For us, most of our investors are people that made their money running and owning businesses that look a lot like the ones we're trying to acquire. So they're very comfortable with the risks associated with those businesses. They're very comfortable with the types of returns that those businesses can generate. Um, they understand the dynamics of managing a smaller group of people and trying to get them to coalesce into a team that's focused on accomplishing something. So our investors, they see the value in being long-term owners. And so, you know, in all of our materials that we've shared with them, it's their understanding is they're going to be along for a really long time. Now they've got the ability to have us buy them out after a certain period of time, but 
the goal is for everybody to be involved with these things long term. And so it's the group of investors along with your own capital that's you know buying these businesses. Is there ever a plan to is there ever a plan to have primarily Traction's own permanent capital buying businesses? That way it gives maybe the option for investors to leave if they need to or if they want to do something else. That's a great question. So for us, our, our vision, you know, if we look five years down the road, is for all of the equity dollars to come either from the businesses that we've acquired and the cash flow that they're generating or just from ourselves so that we have the flexibility. We have, you know, one of the things you'll hear with independent sponsors is this term called certainty to close. So when we're looking at a business, if we're making an offer and a fund that has a committed pool of capital is making an offer, the business owner and the advisor that are on the other side, they're going to come to us and say, hey, we know this other group has the money to get the deal. You're going to have to go raise the money once we sign the LOI. What is the certainty that we have that you're going to be able to close on the transaction? So if we look five years down the road for traction, having our own pool of capital that's all of us internal where we don't have a team that's giving the yay or nay on doing an investment gives us significantly higher certainty to close. On this deal we completed in October, about two-thirds of the equity came from basically our office and essentially from one of the families that's involved with us through Brian Haynes' family. So two-thirds of it came from us on this first one. I think that will gradually increase over time to where we'll be able to do it 100% internally. We'll probably still invite some of our original investors to be a part of the deals going forward. But the goal is to get to where it's all our own capital. And if I can add to that too, I think it's for broker deals, it's one of the first questions that gets asked. Um, Hey, do you guys have a fund that you're pulling from? And while that might look in a negative light from the start for getting these deals done, I think it's an advantage at this point because we don't have the pressure of a fund to get a deal done. Um, We can be more opportunistic, more selective, and eventually we will have, you know, hopefully have a fund that we're really running, but it's our own capital that we've harvested from these businesses or just through kind of the connections that we have. So right now it's, I think it also, as we're looking at new deals, kind of tells us what the owners are looking for. So are the owners looking for the big payday I want to get out? We might not be the right partner. We want to pay a fair price. We really want to partner with the owners that have been in there and want to stick around. So it's it's a question that kind of, as investment banks use it to weed out private equity groups, we can kind of gauge what the owners are looking for based on the same question. And I think to piggyback off Peter's point, the valuations for a lot of these businesses right now are what we think are too high. If we had a fund where we had a timer for having to deploy capital, we'd be forced, I think, to probably pay a higher valuation for some of these deals just because we needed to get money out the door into a company. And so, I mean, even this week, we had a deal we were looking at where we were probably half a turn low from a valuation standpoint in our LOI just to get invited to the management meeting. So from LOI submission, they're going to take three to five people have them actually do meetings with the ownership team. And then from that standpoint, they'll add, they'll ask a couple people to make additional offers. We were low even to get to the management meeting standpoint. And we were already at a multiple where we were like, I I don't know if we want to do this. (laughs) Three to five times is probably where the majority of the businesses with one to five in EBITDA, where they should trade at. The business we acquired in October was like 2.3 in EBITDA and we bought it for a little under four times. We felt pretty good about that valuation. The one that 
I just referenced that we missed out on. We were at six times and we were still low to get invited to the next round. GF Data is a not necessarily proprietary, but it's a it's a database company that sends out information on done deals by private equity groups and it breaks them down by size category. So I think end of 2018 for deals that were between 10 and 25 million in purchase price, the average multiple was under six times. But if you looked end of 2017, so a year prior, it was six and a half, seven times. So the multiples have come down, but they're still, I would say on average, higher than what we would like to see. So we end up passing on a lot of transactions just because we think you make a lot of your money based on how you structure the deal on the front end and the valuation you pay on the front end. So as you started, traction have been, you know, it's a little over a year and a half now, close to two years, or what have your experiences been in sort of lessons learned, or maybe you came in thinking one process would be really easy and it turned out to be much harder than you thought or vice versa. Do you have some stories from that? That's a good question. I think I'll let Peter talk about lessons learned from once you actually own the company. I think from a, you know, my, my job is largely on the front end. So I'm sourcing businesses, I'm doing our analysis. I'm putting together a lot of our materials for the banks and the investors. And then I'm kind of managing that process all the way up through close. Once we close, Peter and Dale kind of come in and they're involved on the front end of the process as well, but they come in and they're the ones that are really there day to day where once we close on the business, my role becomes more of a, hey, can you help with this project or can you do this specific thing rather than being there every day to do something. And I think on the on the deal side of things, which is where I spend most of my time, it really is an ebb and flow of you may have three or four businesses you're looking at at one time. You may have none and you're just sending out emails to investment banks trying to get some deal flow. So it very much is a like there's times where you're super busy and then there's times where you leave the office early to go hike or snowboard or whatever it may be. Uh, yeah, learned quite a bit so far. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Um, we, so. We threw we threw Peter to the wolves. So we, he mentioned this earlier, we knew Peter when he was first out of undergrad doing investment banking for a firm here in the Northwest. And as attraction, as we were starting, we were like, we really need, you know, a younger analyst to work with us. And we kept reaching out to Peter. He kept saying, nah, I don't know, maybe. And so once we actually got our deal closed, he came on and really has been in on the operation side of that business really from day one. Coming from a, so came from BlackRock, coming from a company that size, understanding the systems and the efficiencies, you go into a smaller business and feel like you need to get hands-on and want to change things and building new Excel files for the sales team and building these systems that they can use to be more efficient and realize just as Justin said earlier, like these companies would operate just the same and be just as successful if we don't hop in there at this time. You know, we're there for these owners are sticking around in this case, you know, the sister was kind of running the back office and had a really good grasp on that. And then we had the brother out head of sales driving, really driving the revenue and the sales of the company. On the offset, what I've realized is just how important the people are in a small business. So bigger business like BlackRock, yes, the people are extremely important, but it's also the systems and the efficiencies that are built. In a smaller company, often those efficiencies aren't there yet. And so it's driven by the people. And so we're really lucky with this first company to have great people. So that's been fantastic. I think number two is that great business can, like really great business can still be done on pen and paper. So it's, it's as literally like literal paper trails in the office, but they've 
done this for 30 years. They know how to get stuff done. And so we're looking into new systems and softwares to basically just help everyone out. That's kind of one of the first questions I asked getting in there is like, hey, how can we help you guys out? Like what's, what can we do from day one or day 90 where your life is gonna be easier and everything's gonna be working more efficiently? I think a lot of times when people hear private equity, they immediately think of a headline they saw in the journal or something where PE firm buys a company, fires all these people, cuts all these costs. Yeah. For us, we're coming and saying, hey, we want this business to continue to be in the community that it's been in long term. We want it to continue to employ the same people it's employed. And to Peter's point, it's it's not even where can we cut costs. It's, hey, where can we add people or where can we add new infrastructure to help make you guys' job easier so that we grow and we have to add mm-hmm. more people? I think those have probably been the two buckets. Owning a business is a lot of hard work. I think you have an idea and then you get to hear from the past owner. And then as so Dale Payne is taken over as the owner and kind of CEO of, of this business and just realize it's all the department, HR, finance, accounting, everything kind of bundles up into a CEO. And so it's a ton of hard work. I have a huge respect for those that can make it work, but it also is a really fun challenging and it's been rewarding to see the successes and to see people grow even in such a short period of time. Lots of lots of learning so far. I think one of the things that's been cool for Brian and Jake and I that are in the traction office most days and not out at Sea Western is seeing, even just in the couple of months, the growth of Peter. I mean, we've got big plans for him as part of traction, but it's been cool seeing him really dig in on the operation side of the business and work shoulder to shoulder with Dale to try and, to his point, he came out of BlackRock, which is, I don't know how many billions or trillions of dollars they have, but coming out of this huge business to a company that's got you know, less than 15 people where they're now asking Peter, hey, what do I do here? Or can you help me with this? And so it's been really cool to see him dig in and really start to learn on the operations side of the business. What are the things that we can do in the future with companies to start pulling the levers to create efficiency and, and grow the companies over time. So that's been, that's been a cool thing to see for yeah. sure. That is what interests me in you know, private equity as well is, is it seems like a, an industry or a business that's perfectly designed for really curious people who are just learning machines. And is that a lot of what you look for in maybe like hiring other people to join your team, but also in the businesses you acquire? I don't know that we necessarily look for, I think one of the things that's fun about our work is we're always seeing different types of companies, different types of industries, different types of business models. And so you do get that opportunity to constantly be learning, constantly be asking questions, constantly be thinking, okay, I've seen this in this other industry. Why does this company do it this way in this other industry? So from that standpoint, it is a lot of fun. And you have to, I think to be successful, you have to be curious you have to want to learn and you have to be able to do it pretty quickly because we'll get we'll get a package on a company and we've maybe got a week or two to get barely familiar with the industry and the business enough to say, hey, do we want to spend $15 million on this business? So you have to be curious and you have to learn really quickly and you have to be comfortable with changing pace. Like we were really going after that business that we mentioned earlier that's down in Oregon we found out Tuesday we lost out on it. So it's pencils down. Like that project is over. It's on to the next one. And you've got to be comfortable with that. Is it hard sometimes putting a lot of work into potential company or project and then one email ends the whole process? I would say early in my career, it was it was very frustrating. Especially, and not necessarily at the stage we were at with this one, but 
you know, you would get an LOI signed. When I was doing investment banking, we would be representing a seller and we'd get an LOI signed and you'd get down the road with a buyer. And at that point, you and the seller and the buyer are all pretty emotionally attached to that transaction happening. And until money actually changes hands, there's no guarantee that that deals are going to happen. We had... In 2009, we were trying to close three transactions on, and this was maybe poor planning on our part, but on December 31st. And one of those businesses closed. One of the deals blew up on the 30th, so the day before we were supposed to close. And one of the other deals blew up and then closed again in March of 2010. And so it is tough, but... Uh, maybe Peter's still in this point. For me, I feel like I've gotten used to it. It still sucks when they when they go away, but it's not it's not the end of the world. And that's just part of doing deals. There's you're gonna fall in love with companies, and they're gonna fall out of love with you, and that's just part of how it works. Yeah, it's part of the business. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard not to when you get really excited about a deal or a space that you really like, and you start checking boxes as you're going down. Like, okay, this is what we're looking for. We like this, um, and to not kind of cross the finish line with it, but it, it's a part of the business. I think the part that's frustrating still now, maybe not emotionally and hard, but is frustrating is when we get down the road with the business and we start spending money with attorneys and accountants and then to have the deal fall apart, that is always frustrating writing that check for a deal that didn't happen. But that again is part of doing deals. Switching gears to the PE industry overall, just a little bit. Traction isn't necessarily a, a formal private equity fund with a full-on group of investors. What do you think the floor is for private equity funds in terms of how low can a private equity fund invest in terms of an EBITDA range? And is that an advantage for searchers or people on the smaller end that's going to hold for a long time? Or do you think that floor for private equity is going to get smaller and it's going to start to, you're going to start to see private equity firms directly competing for some of these smaller deals. I think we've started to see firms move down market. I would say when I was doing investment banking, deals with less than 5 million in EBITDA, it was like, well, geez, there's not a big group of buyers for these types of companies. I mean, that was, and that was only 10, 12 years ago. If we think about traditional private equity, the the size of the deal really depends on how big their fund is. So funds will have limits on how small of a check they can write. And so that limits kind of how low they can go depending on how big their fund is. I think if you're thinking of private equity as we're going to invest in a business and we're not going to be day-to-day operators of the business, it's probably in that two to three million range is probably the lowest because a business that's smaller than that not every time but most of the time is is going to be so incredibly dependent on one or two people they're not going to have the systems in place that if you pull that owner out for the business to be successful so i would say probably two to three million now there's there's certainly exceptions to that but i would say two to three is probably the lower end i think for for firms like us and you mentioned search funds search funds where somebody's looking basically to buy a company and then run it I think they could go down to a million or maybe even lower, depending on what their investor base was was comfortable with. Um, for us, you know, we've looked at stuff that's in that million to two million range. I would say it's hard for us to get comfortable with that. There's got to be a pretty clear path for that to grow to two to three in EBITDA. Just because when we come in, we're going to add costs from the standpoint of we're probably going to need to hire 
a handful of people so that EBITDA is going to go from a million to 700,000 just because we're going to bring a controller and an operations person and our services to the table, which is going to burden that company. While I think there's opportunity to buy companies like that and grow them pretty quickly, it's tougher for us to get very far down the road on the smaller business. If I can add to that too, I think going back to the search fund, I think we kind of fit in right in the middle between the two because I think we bring resources of a private equity group to kind of the search fund space. So you have your, you know, maybe traditional search fund where they're going to go and look to operate the company, maybe in that one to $2 million range, but it, it most of the time is just one searcher by themselves. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, private equity group that may go down to the three, four range, but they have a fund, they have a couple more operating professionals. So I think we kind of sit in the middle with, yes, we want to kind of be in that space, maybe a little bit above it, the search fund space, but we're also gonna bring the resources of a private equity group. We have every one of our partners has had operating experience. And so we, I think we kind of fit kind of in the middle between the two. And there's some advantages to that and some disadvantages. And I think, you know, Dale that we've referenced a couple of times, his background is largely as a CFO and COO for privately held companies. And he's worked, you know, businesses that are our size, which are typically in that kind of 10 to 30 million range up to 750 million revenue companies that are privately held. And so he really digs in on the operations side of things. And for us, that's a huge help with the types of companies we're looking at because typically that's where they need help. It's from a financial controls perspective and it's from a just operational management perspective. A lot of times we hear from the business owners when we're talking to them that I started this thing in my garage or at my kitchen table. And at first it was, you know, I had a skill and I could do this thing and it turned into a business. And then it turned into now I have 20 employees and I I'm good at doing this thing, but I don't really want to have to manage all these people. And so a lot of times when we're coming to the table, it's okay, we can take all of the management and operations side of things off your plate so that if you do want to continue to work, you can focus on being really good at building something or serving something or moving something and we'll handle all the headache of actually managing and running and owning the business. And is that part of how you differentiate traction from some of the other buyers they may be in contact with? I would say how we think about differentiation for ourselves is we want to be long-term owners. We, you know, if we're talking to a business owner, they may be talking to a private equity group where the private equity group is saying, we're going to come in, we're going to grow it, and we're going to sell it. And we're coming and saying, hey, we, we do want to grow the business. We don't want to buy businesses that are going the other direction, but we want to grow it and own that business for a really long time. And we want to provide opportunities for your employees and we want the business to continue to be in the community where it's been. And so I think those are probably the things that are differentiators for us. And we've seen that resonate with business owners that we've been chatting with even over the last couple of weeks. We're, we're certainly not, if a business owner solely wants to get the highest price, we're just, we're not going to be a good fit. Yeah. What, what would you say is your like optimum business owner who's selling to you? What kind of character, is there any characteristics you look for for the, the owner to have in particular? It's hmm. a good question. That is a good question. Um, we want people that are, are passionate about the company that they or their family has built and, and really cares about their employees. Uh, I think that type of business owner is more concerned about, maybe legacy is the wrong word, but, but more concerned with what happens to the business 
after I sell a portion of it than the person who's saying, yes, I want the business to be successful going forward, but I also am filtering all these offers for what gives me the most money. And so we love business owners like Steve that we partnered with on C Western that we close on in October is a perfect example. He loves selling equipment to fire departments. I mean, he his family started the business in the 70s. Him and his sister have been running it now for the last 10 years or so. He loves what he does. And we're like, hey, we'll take everything off your plate that you don't want to do so that you continue enjoying that piece of it. That to us is is perfect. With your experience in C Western, is that similar to what you've seen? I think the passion is huge. I'm taking a lot of pride in the business, really making a focal point during the due diligence that they're just like Justin said, focused on their people and the business and less on making sure they filter for the highest price. I think that's where we kind of come in as partners and and long-term, long-term holders, I guess, long-term partners. My other experience with that is my dad runs a, a family-owned business up in the Northwest and a, around that kind of similar size and what he brings to the table and what I would hope to find in other business owners like him is is a very similar stance and also being able to hire the right people so that their job is maybe more focused on kind of the capital allocation side. It's a new term sometimes for business, business owners, but it's very easy for business owners to want to wear every hat in the business. And so it's nice when you come across an owner that is able to differentiate maybe what their specialty is and what they want to do and be able to hire the right people around them. I guess I'd maybe add that one in. Yeah. And I, and I don't know, this is necessarily a characteristic of the business owners, but for the size businesses we're talking about, if we come across a business where the owner has been able to take themselves out of operations, a lot of businesses will try and tell you that they'll try and say, Oh, the owner's there a couple hours a week and it's just to say hi to people. But if you can find a business where the owner literally is not involved in the day to day, that is, that's like we yeah, we would love for those businesses to call us. Yeah, I, yeah, and I and maybe even add on top of that is if the moat doesn't live completely with the owner, it's yeah, maybe it's not an owner. It's not and maybe necessarily an owner characteristic, but a business characteristic that how defensible the business is, making sure that doesn't live completely with the owner. So I would say maybe on top of that, the owner being able to take a part of their moat as the owner and take that moat and put it into the business versus carrying it all themselves. One of the questions we like to ask in due diligence is what's the longest you can go without answering your cell phone? Like if you like going on vacation is one thing, but you can still have your phone and your computer on vacation and still answer questions. But how long can you go without responding to an email or answering the phone for something related to your company? And that's a good sign of how how much somebody's actually extricated themselves from the day-to-day running of the company. And so that kind of leads to a discussion. What are some red flags that you see with businesses? You've seen a lot of deals at this point. What sort of things do you see that turn you off from an owner or a business in particular? We try and avoid scenarios where the owners want to transition out, I mean, immediately, and where that's really apparent even in the initial conversations of, hey, we want to sell the business and we want to be you know, out in six months to a year. Simply if they say six months to a year, it means two months or three months or a couple of weeks. So I would say a business where the owner wants to exit really quickly is a red flag for us. When we're structuring a transaction, we try and get either some seller financing or some seller rollover in the transaction. 
so businesses where the owners are completely opposed to both of those things. And initially they may be opposed just because they don't understand what those things actually mean. But if they're opposed to doing that, that's a red flag for us. And then, I mean, outside of that, you know, customer concentration, low margins, no growth, you know, depending on the industry, uh, I would say there's, yeah, a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah. I'd, I'd add two. So one on the business owner side is an owner who has like a very highly technical experience in aptitude. So if we run into a business where the owner is a technical expert in whatever their field is, and then they're like, Hey, I'm looking to transition out. We need some new owners to come and do what I've been doing. That can be a little bit worrisome. And then from a business perspective, we don't want to get into a business out of our circle of competence. I, I think we've, at least with the partners, I'm, I'm, I don't have a whole lot of experience yet in running businesses, but more kind of old school economy, manufacturing, distribution businesses that we can come in with good experience and add value to. And so businesses that off the at the onset that we can't figure out right away or might take a, a much more technical owner than maybe not necessarily a red flag, but a, hey, let's really think about this one before we kind of move on to due diligence and into the offer stage. You have some stories about when you're maybe on the onset, the company looks pretty good, but as you do due diligence, things come up like they maybe own a secret plane that's owned through the business that they use all the time, or maybe they run a lot of personal expenses that you didn't know about initially. What sort of things come up initially and due we've, diligence that make you like full stop? I was gonna say we've run into planes, but they're yeah, not a secret. One of the businesses <laughs> we're looking at right now, we have a plane on the balance sheet. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, it's an excluded asset, so yeah. that's that's a bummer. There was a deal we looked at that was in the kind of transportation space, and we we knew they were a unionized shop. What we what we didn't fully understand was the pension liability that they had that was not reflected on their financial statements, and initially was communicated to us to be significantly different than what we thought and it was it was a bummer for both sides it was for us we were like man there's this huge liability that now has to get paid off if we're going to do this but it was also from our standpoint we felt bad for the business owner because he hadn't fully understood what that value was either and so when we were presenting our offer and walking through kind of what his proceeds would be the the pension liability was going to be 80 to 90 percent of that so it's like hey we're paying x millions of dollars but really what you get is 20 percent of that because there's this thing that's not on the balance sheet but the company still is responsible for and that that was just a bummer that was just frustrating for both sides i think but yeah i think you i think you get in to businesses all the time and you you may think that they have something proprietary that they're doing but the further you get under the covers you may realize oh like this is actually not a proprietary process or a proprietary product or it's literally like third-party parts that they're assembling when they're telling you it's a proprietary product that they're manufacturing and so that stuff like that just it's good to find it out before you buy the company but it's still just a frustrating part of due diligence at least since i've been with traction we haven't run into any big ones where it's like we uncovered something through due diligence that really threw us off. I feel like we've done a pretty good job at the beginning stages of doing good job filtering for moving on, I guess. I, I can't think of it. One other example, when I was working in private equity down in Austin, we 
it was it was pretty pretty newly after I was on the job, and I had sourced this deal that was a a pipeline services company. Being in Texas, there was a lot of oil field related stuff, and it was doing non destructive testing on on pipelines. And we really liked the business. We were working on an LOI, and somebody in the office said, "Hey, did you guys Google the guy's name?" <laughs> and it had come back that he had had this not long rap sheet, but he had gotten in trouble for some things that were off-putting and so that deal very quickly died after that and i was just like oh no <laughs> is that on your checklist now uh we, yeah we typically will google search maybe do a background check how has it been working with other intermediaries through this process of buying companies is it you've obviously both had experience you know being intermediaries and doing it yourself but as the buyer and the one executing the deal is your perspective changing on how that relationship works? I don't know about changing necessarily. For us, you know, we're focused on businesses that are based basically Colorado and West. And so for us, we're continually working on building out a database of who are the intermediaries, whether it be investment banks or attorneys or business brokers that are in kind of the major metro areas of those states so that we can be as frequently as possible touching base with them on whether or not they've got transactions that fit the types of companies we're looking for. I would say the thing that not necessarily has been challenging, but given the fact that we don't have our own fund and we're fairly new in the market and we've only done one deal with the four of us under the traction umbrella, uh, there's a there's a question in the intermediaries' minds of, do I really want this firm to be one of the firms that I'm presenting to my client as a potential buyer? Just because we don't have the track record and we don't have $100 million that we can just call to do a deal. So I think that part's been challenging, but on the flip side of that, being able to communicate our story and why we think we're different and pointing to our track record of, hey, we are able to get deals closed is helpful. But it, But certainly the sourcing has been kind of a growing and learning experience for us. Do you think there will eventually be some sort of snowball effect where after a certain number of deals, you have a track record, you have references for owners to look back at, and eventually it'll you know, be a bit smoother? Of a, I, I, I definitely think so. I think the track record will definitely help. I think one of the things, Peter's 25, I'm 31, Jake's mid-30s, Peter's or Brian's 40, Dale's mid-50s, I'm a lot of times the first face that they see and I am 31 and I look like I'm probably younger than that. Um, so, you know, that can be a little bit of a challenge for us sometimes, but I've also, you know, I did investment banking up here for a long time. So I've known a lot of these people for 10 years that has helped kind of get us over that hurdle. I, but I think getting more deals done and getting bigger deals done will definitely, I think, make things easier going forward. Yeah, it's a huge part of content in a way for a smaller firm like us. So we're, I mean, we're still such in the beginning stages of how we want to look kind of to potential investors, to potential companies. And so having that experience uh, closing deals is, is huge. Brian and Jake own some companies outside of Traction. I've done deals outside of Traction. Dale's been involved with deals outside of Traction. And so we can talk to all these things, but when we say, oh, like, us five as traction, we've only done this one transaction. Now, it's better than it was six months ago. Six months ago, we were just saying, hey, yeah, we do deals, but we don't actually have a company that we've acquired yet. So actually getting one done 
has been huge. Um, I think there's a lot of people, and we were this up until six months ago, that walk around talking about doing transactions and being independent sponsors and wanting to be that. Um, and a lot of them never get a deal close, unfortunately. We were fortunate, and it's it's hard, it's hard work. It's stressful. We were fortunate to get one done, um, hopefully the first of a lot. But, yeah, getting one done and then continuing down that path will, will make it easier going forward for us. And then maybe this is a question that's asked too early in your process, but do you see your future deals going up market or do you think you would stay in this EBITDA range and just expand the number of deals you look at? Have you thought about that at all in terms of a maybe a long-term vision for traction? I think it's I think it's easier for firms that start small to scale up and look at larger deals. I think it's harder for firms that start with, hey, we're only 10 plus in EBITDA and we won't look at anything below that. I think it's harder for them to scale down. So I think you know, if we look five, 10 years down the road, we will, my guess is, look at larger deals along the way. But I think we'll always be interested in companies that are in that kind of one to five, one to 10 range, just because there's a, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. The valuations are lower. There's a lot of what we call low-hanging fruit in the businesses. And it's, to Peter's point, we like unsexy companies. A lot of times they do things on pen and paper. And we can come and say, okay, like, what if we just had a software program that would do all of this for you and you didn't have to have stacks of paper everywhere? So with those, with the size companies that are in that kind of one to five, one to 10 range, there's a lot of those types of very easy things that we can help and move the business forwards. If you could go to college, any college, and be a professor of a class, what would you teach if you could teach one class that you uh, was up to you? And Peter, I remember we talked about yeah. Charlie Munger and you're you know, almost a walking encyclopedia of Munger. What would your curriculum look like? Yeah, I think I'd thrown that out on Twitter at some point doing the Munger's Mental Models class. Uh, I think I'd need about 15 years more studying to be able to teach it. <laughs> Uh, that's it's a really good question. I, I think I would want to do something similar to that. Or I, another idea I have is getting students ready for the different kind of jobs that are out there. So it is a wildly different role when you're at a large eleven thousand employee company compared to a fifteen person company. And I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in wanting to do the big route and going down the, that path. And often there are opportunities in a smaller space. I mean, I don't know if I can make a whole curriculum on this, but there's tremendous opportunity out there at smaller companies that have great people, opportunity for growth and mentorship. And so maybe it wouldn't be a full curriculum class, but I think if that's something I'd really want to students to know that there's a lot of other opportunities out there than necessarily wanting to choose the, the big company, the the path that a lot of people end up taking, which is fine. It's just there's there's other options out there too. And are there a few mental models that you use particularly often through your work? I think maybe accidentally um, through, I, I tend to be more uh, math data focused. And so I learned quite a bit on that side at Excel, quite a bit up at BlackRock. And so I've been able to take that and apply it kind of smaller company space at Sea Western, and that's been pretty fun. I don't know if I could clearly communicate what it actually means, but it's just what I've learned and, and gained through my experience and then being able to apply it and then explain it to people. Um, but yeah, I'd say 
data side on probability um, and understanding different scenarios and opportunity costs, like pretty simple ones. But I've noticed like in a smaller company, you realize as you're explaining these options and making decisions that when questions come up and then you have to explain them, it kind of forces you to realize, oh, actually I am using that mental model or that's something that's just kind of ingrained. Uh, Harvard has a class on the search fund model. I think back to being an undergrad and I would have loved a class, not necessarily search fund model, but how buying a business works and then what you do with a company once you actually acquire it. Because I think you know, for students that are at least, again, I went to a small Christian school, so our business school program shouldn't be compared to a lot of other programs. But when I think about the things that we learned in our finance and accounting programs, it was, it was geared towards working for a Deloitte or a KPMG or working at a bank. It, it wasn't geared towards, okay, how do you actually use the finance and accounting skills to drive value, value and grow? A company and I think if you're coming out of undergrad with at least some concept of what are the levers you can pull to drive value and grow a business I think you're going to be significantly more employable to the smaller companies that Peter mentioned if you're going into a huge 10,000 person firm probably not as relevant but I think for the smaller firms if you can come in and actually demonstrate hey like let's look at our margin by product type or where, what are our actual cost centers? If you understand that coming out of undergrad, you're going to be years ahead of your peers coming out. And you're going to be much more valuable to the business owner that you're working for. Now, that may not appeal to all the students, but when I think back on my time and what I have ended up doing with my career, that would have been a great class to be a part of. What would you consider to be the best or most fortunate event to have happened to you that was entirely by chance? Uh, I referenced earlier that I got an internship kind of end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year in undergrad at the investment bank. And I was a part of a church over kind of where I'd grown up and where I was living during the summers back where my folks are at. And we had this program called Business as Mission, which was focused on business leaders that were a part of the church and kind of facilitating small groups for those people. And a number of the guys in that said, hey, like if you're going into finance, you need to meet this guy named Michael Weiss. And so I literally went up to him after church one Sunday. It was like, hey, can I have like 15 minutes? Like this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Like I'm studying finance and accounting. Can I come by your office for 15 minutes sometimes? And he was like, yeah, sure. And we ended up, when I went to his office, we ended up chatting for a couple of hours. And coming out of that, he paid for me to go to this conference that was put on by ACG, which is Association for Corporate Growth. Um, they do a big kind of finance and growth conference here in Seattle every July. And I was a 20-year-old kid. I barely even knew what private equity was. Like I had to Google the term. And he paid for me to go to this conference and it was a full day of sitting on panels on deal structure and finance and leverage and this is what we're trying to do with our companies once we acquire them. And I remember coming out of that meeting being like, I have, whether it's with his firm or somebody else, I have to work in this world because it's fascinating to me. I wasn't expecting him to take me to that thing. I wasn't planning on him to take me to that thing. But looking back, that was a pivotal moment for me and one of the nicest things that that somebody's done for me for sure
That's a, it's a really good question. I'm a big believer in randomness and optionality and kind of paths cross sometimes for completely random reasons. And so I was really fortunate to get the internship that I did after school working for this, the investment bank, Merritt Harbor Capital, and where I got linked up with this crew. And honestly, this position I'm in right now and this role, I feel extremely fortunate for. Um, I didn't know what my career was kind of going to look like getting back into this size of sp in space. And so I feel extremely fortunate to have this group kind of behind me and believe in me. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to start, but I'm really looking forward to what we can do with it and what traction is going to turn into. So yeah, it, it ends up, you kind of trace back how you got to a spot and tracing back to getting to traction now. It's uh, I was very fortunate that luck was on my side getting to know this this group. And I think one of the things that, kind of to Peter's point, I, I feel like I've always worked for people that have been advocates of the next wave and the younger generation and really pushing people that maybe didn't have any, like maybe shouldn't have been in that board meeting or maybe shouldn't have been at that table. But people gave me the opportunity to experience those things and do those things and have always pushed and encouraged me. And I've been the benefactor of that. And I think Peter hopefully will get some of that from us as well. He's not that much younger than me. But yeah, I mean, it's it's fun to be 25 and 30 and thinking about and working on these things and having the ability to, to, to dictate what we actually turn traction into. I think we've been, both of us have been really fortunate and, and hopefully we'll be successful with it going forwards. Final question for you. What is the best business you've ever seen? One of the first deals I worked on when I was doing investment banking was a company in Nebraska, in Kimball, Nebraska, which is in like the middle of nowhere. Uh, and it was a company called Castronics. And it was, we were the investment bank representing the seller. So we were working on behalf of the owner of Castronics. And the owner, had a crazy story like dropped out of high school started working in the oil field and eventually built up to where he had probably five to ten companies this was like the smallest one that he had the business was they had a basically a proprietary pipe threading technology that they would do on tubular goods in the oil field and business made i think it was probably two and a half and ebitda maybe like good little business they had like a five or 10 acre piece of property where all their customers, they would allow their customers just to store pipe for free. Like not even stuff they were working on, just would let their customers store pipe for free. We sold the business to a search fund. And the first thing the search fund did was just reach out to everybody who had pipe stored on premises. Just like, hey, is there anything we can do to that pipe for you? They bought the business, I think for 8 million bucks and sold it three years later for $38 million. And it was these little low hanging things like reaching out to the customers that have product at your facility already. And it took, I remember we sold the business. Then I remember seeing the art, like the headline that they had sold like three years later. And I was just like, we should have bought that company. <laughs> That's one of the ones that come, I mean, there's yeah, that, maybe not the greatest business model, but that, that deal comes to mind for sure. Well, thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and thank you for uh, sharing some of your experience. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, yeah we appreciate the opportunity to sit down. This really appreciate it. A lot it. of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Absolutely. Hope Thanks for coming out. Of course. I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys again soon. Yeah, cool. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds good. As well. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. 
For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.